0: This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Human Action Podcast. It's great to have you with us this weekend. Our guest is a returning guest, Dr. Seyfried Amos. He's actually been on the show a couple times. We covered his Bitcoin Standard book, which was obviously... Uh, a revolutionary and seminal work a couple of years ago. More recently, I believe in the fall of 2020, we discussed his upcoming Principles of Economics textbook, which was kind of a unique project. But he's got another project. Uh, this book is called The Fiat Standard, The Debt Slavery Alternative to Human Civilization. And in typical safety and fashion, He is not going the traditional route. He is writing this book, rewriting it, going through drafts. Uh, Some of his subscribers have earlier access to certain chapters, so uh, he's not going about it as a typical fiat academic, and we'll explain what that means here perhaps in a bit. So all that said, safe. It's great to hear your voice again.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Jeff. It's always a pleasure.
0: Yeah, you know, I was interested in looking at this book. I guess first and foremost, I was wondering, did you decide originally to do it in some sort of serialized format? Are you trying to continually revise it, source, uh, crowdsource comments, that sort of thing? What's Will there ultimately be a print version of the book?
1: Yes, there will be a print version coming out in December, just in time for Christmas. Um, but, uh, I thought, um, you know, the, uh, the traditional academic way is that you publish papers and you discuss them with your colleagues and you get feedback on them and then you, uh, revise and then you turn them into a book. But I think, um, the internet allows us to be far more efficient than that system. And, um, with a kind of entrepreneurial, uh, uh, take on things, which is that uh ultimately i 'm writing for my readers, and um i I could uh, have it so that i 'm sending the early chapters the drafts of the chapters, the first draft of each chapter out to my readers, and those are likely to be the most uh interested most loyal re- readers, the one that are going to subscribe on my website so uh these are the ones that I care about the most, and so their feedback is uh Highly appreciated. So, I uh, sent it out to subscribers over the past, uh, what is it now, eight, nine months, Uh, one chapter every two weeks, alternating with Principles of Economics, which I'm also uh, coming close to finishing up. And I've been getting feedback on it and uh, revising it as I go along. And now it's uh, very close to done.
0: Yeah, this seems like a much better system because if you're writing a book over a period of a year or two, things change. New new facts come to light. It's, we don't have to live in this old analog world anymore.
1: Yeah, it can keep changing and updating and taking on feedback.
0: and. Did you decide on this with an eye towards the 50th anniversary of 1971, or was that – is the book coming out in in 21 just a happy circumstance?
1: No, it was really just um, uh, serendipity, I think. Um, I I came – I came across the idea of writing this book after I'd written the Bitcoin standard. And um, I saw somebody, um, one of the Bitcoin people named Giacomo Zucco, who was doing a presentation of trying to understand um, altcoins and trying to make the case for altcoins. And uh, that approach kind of struck me as being interesting, you know, look at something, try and make the case for something that you don't like uh, in order to try and understand it properly. And so I thought, and I'd already had a bunch of writings and a bunch of ideas that I wanted to write about after I'd finished the Bitcoin standard. So this uh, this came to me as a as a good way of um, packaging all of these ideas, which is um, you know the Bitcoin standard introduced Bitcoin, and the fiat standard is going to discuss how Bitcoin uh, rises, coexists, or uh, dethrones uh, in a f- the fiat system. And so I thought the best way to begin would be to just study the fiat system from scratch in the same way that I studied Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin was written for people who had no idea what Bitcoin is. And I tried to get together the economic, uh, technical uh, and the societal and uh, political aspects uh, and the significance of Bitcoin to all of those fields and try and put them into one uh, coherent narrative and so I thought, I'll try and do the same with fiat. And uh, it's, 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 it's come along nicely. I've been working on this for maybe three years now.
0: Well, it's interesting. What I was struck reading this over the weekend is that you sort of turn things on their head. The Bitcoin standard was written with a lot of theory and history. Uh, about the past and fiat, and then introduce Bitcoin conceptually in the latter part of the book. Whereas this almost starts with an understanding of Bitcoin, especially in some of your chapter titles and some of your nomenclature, and then it goes back and explains fiat. So it's almost like Bitcoin's the standard now, and fiat's the crazy aberration that we need to understand.
1: Yeah, and I think this is uh, this is probably going to age well because I think in uh, in the future. Um, it's going to be much harder to explain fiat to people than Bitcoin. And I think uh, this kind of approach, because I think Bitcoin is just, uh, first of all, it's more uh, logical and rational as a system because it was uh, designed by a computer scientist to serve the core essential functions of what you would want from a monetary system. And so it's really... bare bones and very clear if you really get under the hood and study the technical aspects of it whereas the fiat system you know it was the um, emergent uh, bastard child really of uh, 80 years of government defaults and uh, financing war and propaganda and lies so it was it's not really designed very uh, intelligently and the drawing you know the, the the analytical lens of the first part of the book is to think of fiat as a digital currency, um, which is which it is after all. You know a small fraction of fiat money is printed out into pieces of paper, but the vast majority is digital. And so, if this was an altcoin, and it was uh, you know you had to study it as a to write a paper about it for your university or for your job. Um, what would it look like? How does it work? And by drawing an analogy with the constituent parts of Bitcoin, you can get very good insight into how fiat actually works.
0: Yeah, this was fascinating for me because we imagine that fiat is designed. We spend all this time trying to understand the plumbing of central banks and how money moves and how international settlement takes place and all that. And you, you imagine that there's some sort of there behind it all. But really, as you point out, this is ad hoc. It was political. It wasn't really designed. And I think what you explained so nicely is that fiat is born out of default, right? It's an entire 20th century where you discuss the Bank of England, but also, of course, the U.S. Fed defaulting on their promises to deliver gold in in exchange for paper. That's the essence of the fiat model.
1: Exactly. I think um, the key idea is that it it, it is just a default that has not been formalized. These institutions had uh, liabilities where they said, you know, you give us um, a piece of paper, you give us one of our pieces of paper, we'll give you a piece of gold back in return. And it's just been like the deadbeat friend who just keeps giving you stories about why he can't get you your money back. Uh, It's been like that for a century now of just more elaborate reasons why no, you can't have your gold back and no, you have to take our paper And our paper has to continue to uh, decline in value and we're going to keep making more and more of it to finance government spending. It's just an endless series of um, really patches and workarounds to make this uh, system trudge along. But, you know, to be fair, it has uh, stumbled along over the past uh, few decades and it is kind of working. So, uh, you know, it, it, it bears looking into what is it that makes it tick? why it
0: works. I think some of your readers are going to be surprised, actually, by your treatment of fiat and your understanding of it. Uh, and also by your treatment of gold at the very end of the book and its liquidity. Uh, so there might be some surprises in store for even the most hardcore safe readers. But I want to talk I want to let you talk about two concepts which are very important in the beginning of this book. And and I think you laid them out really well. Uh, the idea of saleability across time and the idea of saleability across space. So we have one where we think of hardness and gold, and then we have one where we think of fiat. So explain how, what these two concepts are for our readers who maybe aren't familiar with your work and also how Bitcoin attempts to fix this. Yeah, so
1: the uh, main uh, idea around which the Bitcoin standard was written is the concept of saleability across time which refers to how well, you know, the the concept of saleability is Menger's uh, Menger's explanation of the essential property of money. The quintessential property of money is that it is the most saleable good. It's the one that you're able to sell uh, with the least loss of value at any particular time, uh, with the least loss of market price, because the good is highly liquid. There are a lot of potential counterparties available for you. That's why Uh, your hundred dollar bill is much more liquid than um, you know a hundred dollar shoe because it's not easy to sell a hundred dollar shoe to somebody who wants it when you want it so uh, in the bitcoin standard i explained salability across time with reference to how well things hold on to their value and i argue that the most important metric is arguably the stock to flow or the inverse of the Uh, growth rate, the supply growth rate. So a money that has a very fast supply growth rate is just going to continue to be devalued over time and value stored in it is going to be dissipated onto the new holders. And so it won't hold on to its value well across time. So it's not very saleable across time. If you hold on to fiat across uh, decades, it doesn't hold its value very well. Uh, Gold does that better and Bitcoin has been doing that even better over the past uh, decade or so. But in the fiat standard, I focus on saleability across space, which is um, the the similar concept, but it refers to how much you lose as you move the money across space. And I think this is really the key analytical framework that allows us to understand why fiat survived. And so it's true that it is an imposition on the market. It's not been chosen on the market. And yet it has worked for 50 years. And I think, you know, when you think about it from the perspective of saleability across space, you can see why it has worked for 50 years. And that's because um, ultimately, the alternatives that we had are not highly saleable across space, in particular gold and silver. It's very expensive to move gold around. It's really expensive to ship a billion dollars worth of gold across the Atlantic, when the uh the German central bank repatriated its gold from the Federal Reserve um a few years ago, it cost them uh something like nine million dollars to get uh their gold well from from New York and from france and then they, of course the only way that you can truly guarantee its purity is that you have to melt it down and pour it into new bars, which is a huge uh Complex operation. That's really the only way that you can guarantee the purity of a gold bar. So that's highly inconvenient. If you and and that's ultimately why governments were able to impose their inferior sale uh, their money that's inferior in its salability across time. They were able to impose it on the market because the alternative was extremely not salable across space. It's not easy to move gold around. And ultimately you can't really move it around without the permission of governments who control uh, national borders in the 20th century. And you can't just build a, um, you know, an underground uh, gold or a, you know, a gray market, let's not say black market, a gray market gold settlement uh, network is not something you can do. You know, you can't just uh, get on an airplane with a couple of hundred uh, pounds of gold across the Atlantic, drop them off at the bank, if uh, gold was easier to move around, if gold was cheaper and faster to move around, it would have been more difficult for governments to force people to continue to use their uh, terribly inflationary money. But ultimately, the only way that you could send value across national borders was that you had to go through the what I call your local fiat node uh, to borrow Bitcoin nomenclature, Uh, your local central bank, you have no choice except going through your central bank. And all of the banking functions in a country are built around the the national currency and they're not built around gold. And you can't just build a gold bank. Um, And people who have tried have not succeeded, not because the market rejected it, but because governments rejected it. So that I think really helps us understand why, you know, that's uh, in a sense the, the 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 redeeming feature of fiat, or I shouldn't even say redeeming because um, it's it, it wouldn't be chosen on the market on its own, but that's really what allowed it to get away with um, banning gold.
0: Right. And it, But as you point out in Chapter 3, it's not pure fiat, it's not pure decree. Governments have to create a market by accepting other governments' money and exchanging it. So that's that's a, a bit of a nod to I, – I won't call it the success of central banks. But in other words, they have cobbled together a system which, which has worked. And in part, they've had to have a market, for example, for US dollars to make it work.
1: Yeah. Ultimately, all fiat uh, central banks – don't There is no such a thing as a pure fiat money in that you know some guy wakes up and prints up a bunch of papers or creates digital entries and then just tells the world well or tells their country this is the money that we 're going to use there's always backing there 's always a currency backing it so every fiat currency either has gold in reserve or it has another currency that also has gold in reserve and in fact, the way that the United States dollar Became the world's um, reserve currency, the world's top fiat currency, was precisely because it was uh, the, the US had accumulated an enormous amount of gold in World War I and World War II and during the Great Depression because of uh, the massive flight of gold from Europe because of the two wars. And so it's ultimately uh, down to gold. It, the role that fiat has, the monetary role that fiat has comes from the fact that they had the most gold. The the Americans had the most gold. And before that, it was the English who had, you know, the Central Bank of England uh, had uh, a global gold settlement network that it operated, which was the biggest and most important in the world.
0: Well, and as you point out, of course, this whole thing isn't costless. And we pay the price on, I guess, what we can call the saleability across time, inflation. Uh, Fiat isn't very hard. And so, could you just give us a, a quick detour into your, I think, excellent takedown of CPI in Chapter 4, and also why Michael Saylor, CEO of MicroStrategy, thinks maybe we ought to look at prices in terms of individual specific vectors.
1: Yeah. So I've explained the kind of engineering trade-off that uh, fiat takes, but I don't think that it is a smart uh, trade-off, because ultimately what happens is that we're uh, witnessing all of the downsides of fiat, which I'll discuss in a minute, we're paying all of that price as an alternative for the expensive settlement of gold. And so gold settlement might be expensive, but it is infinitely cheaper than uh, all of the damage that fiat money does. And, uh, you know, Mises had a a quote uh, along those lines, but it was about the cost of production of gold. But I think it's equally applicable to the uh, settlement of gold. It is expensive, just like with Bitcoin, but the expense is worth it because the alternative is that we have easy money and the costs of easy money are far, far outweigh the uh, benefits, the, the costs of expensive settlement. So it's, it's by no means a, a smart or sane engineering trade-off. It's the kind that can only be taken by a government. But... um The implication, of course, is you know, the first and most obvious one is that the value of the money is constantly. Declining, And if you think of it from an Austrian perspective, there's no reason why the money supply should increase. You know, you could cap the money supply in any country today and the economy would adjust. And as we see with Bitcoin, you know, the economy grows far faster than the supply grows. And it doesn't seem to be hampering the economy's uh, enormous growth, which has averaged 200% per year over the past decade um so the there's you know bitcoin is empirical proof that uh it you don't need the money supply to grow at a rate similar to the growth of the economy because we we see it in front of us and so when you think of it this way you know there's really no reason for the fiat money supply to increase if you wanted to run an sane fiat money system um and you just had your own currency you would just limit the supply you'd keep the supply fixed and then the value of the money would appreciate over time so all of the increase in the supply of the money is essentially devaluation of the existing uh holders money and so uh, regardless of what happens with consumer prices the holders of the money are still being expropriated you know the supply of your money is increasing and prices are not just a function of what's happening to the supply of your money. This, they're also a function of industrial and uh, market conditions. And so things are always getting cheaper because we're always making more of everything. Uh, in spite of central banks' best attempts, everything's always getting cheaper in real terms. In fact, uh, you know, there's a um, uh, th- there's a comparison uh, called the Simon Index in honor of Julian Simon, which looks at Uh, the abundance of uh, goods in terms of human time in 2020 versus in 1980, so 40 years away. And with pretty much everything, you can make uh, several multiples as much per minute of work today because we just have so much more of everything. We have more coffee, more, uh, more copper, more gold, more oil. Everything is becoming more abundant because we're always producing more and more of everything. And so that should be reflected in dropping prices. Instead, we witness prices rising. And then, uh, you know, we're gaslighted essentially by the same government that inflates the money supply into believing that no, prices are rising at uh, the optimal one or two or three percent, which the economy needs for optimal performance, uh, because they have Calculated a basket of goods, which they call the consumer, from which they calculate the consumer price index, and that basket of it's a representative basket of goods, as if such a thing could exist. When you know that there's no representative basket of goods because everybody's buying different things, um, and every year you know they run the numbers on this, and then they come up with an estimate of it. But I think it's completely meaningless as an well, not completely meaningless. It is it it does carry some meaning, but it is massively distorted. Because ultimately, I think the main issue, the, the fundamental unfixable issue, regardless of all of the quibbling about the details, is that you're performing measurement without a unit. And that's just absurd. There is, And of course, it's a very common absurdity repeated in macroeconomics textbooks, which is, you know, they measure utility without putting a unit on it. I remember when we'd teach when I would teach macroeconomics or microeconomics, then we'd perform all of these calculations on utility. And every now and then, you know, I'd have some engineering student in my class and they'd ask, but you know, 14.3 to what? And <laughs> that's when I, you know, I sit them down, I tell them, well, you know, they don't really like to talk about what the unit is, but sometimes they mention it as, as, as a thing called a util. But that's the absurdity of trying to make measurements without a unit, you know. Um, Compare that to any other kind of measurement that we carry out. Imagine if you're trying to compare uh, the height of two people, if you can't refer to a measurement unit, you know, whatever that unit is, there has to be some kind of unit. It could be a foot or a meter or something, but you need to be able to contrast that unit to the two things in order to perform measurement. So we don't have that with the CPI. What they try and do is effectively the CPI itself is the measuring unit for the value of the dollar, but the dollar is the measurement unit for the value of prices, or is is the measurement unit for prices. And the CPI is the measurement unit for the value of the dollar. So you're measuring the CPI in what? It's it's meaningless. And of course, because it's meaningless, that's why you can get away with all kinds of uh, sloppy and... um, uh mendacious mathematics basically because uh you know you're measuring uh, you, you're measuring uh, ghosts in uh haunted houses you know so you can assume whatever you want and conclude whatever you want because you can't you, you don't have a you don't have a a measurement um, uh, unit with which you can reference it to and so you can, uh, you know, the problem with CPI is because you don't have a unit, you're just uh, you're you're performing uh, essentially circular reasoning, mathematical circular reasoning. It's like when you're in Excel and you have put in a circular reference where uh, the, the 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 cell cal- the value of the cell is dependent on the value of the cell, but you know Excel tells you you're doing something wrong. But that doesn't stop uh, government economists because they will measure the value of the dollar based on prices in the dollar. And the nonsense of it is that people's purchasing decisions are based on the value of the dollar. So you can't measure the value of the dollar based on people's purchases. In other words, if your salary is $1,000 a month and you spend it on uh, goods that are worth $1,000, if the price of those goods goes up by tenfold um, overnight, uh, you know, everything jumps in price by tenfold, what's the you know your basket of goods is going to remain very close to a thousand dollars because that's your income. And most people, of course live hand to mouth these days. Nobody has any savings. so if uh, if the prices go up, you're still going to be spending a thousand dollars because that's all you have. And so if we measure the consumer price uh, if we measure the consumer price index based on the value of your basket of goods we see that it's still $1000 so there's no inflation of course what we don't see is that you've uh, changed the composition of goods in your basket of goods and so the my favorite example that I use in the book is you you'll substitute ribeyes with uh, soy burgers mm-hmm. and that's kind of what's been happening with the dietary guidelines and with uh, the way that uh, people's diets have been going, you know, people are moving away from the most nutritious options because these are the most expensive foods, because, you know, they contain a lot of nutrition and it takes a while to grow them, particularly red meat. And um, they're eating more industrial junk, essentially. Um, You know, hydrogenated oils instead of animal fats and uh, soy and pulses and beans instead of uh, red meat. So if you substitute these uh, cheap inferior products for the um, healthier, more expensive products, then you don't see a lot of inflation. And not not coincidentally, um, dietary guidelines encourage you to do this Dietary guidelines tell you that, you know, you should just get your proteins and a protein is a protein. It doesn't really matter if you get it from uh, uh, beef or uh, soy. And it'll also tell you, oh, and by the way, you know, your beef is boiling the oceans and burning the planet and cow farts are going to destroy earth. And so stay away from the expensive food and eat the cheaper food. This has been, I I, I think it's it's quite obvious if you look at it, this has been a strong motivation in American farm policy and American dietary policy and there's, and there's quite a bit of evidence about it that because of inflation in the 1970s, one of the most important motivations of policy was to try and get food prices down. And, uh, you know, obviously, as anybody who's read any economic history knows, they will try everything except for the one thing that actually works, which is cutting down the inflation.
0: Yeah, it really is something. And I, I got to tell you, the whole second part of this book, ladies and gentlemen. Part one is fiat money. Part two is fiat life. And if you follow Saifedean on Twitter, which you should, uh, you probably already have a sense of his perspective, not only on meat and dietary matters, but just on all the uh, really sociology of what fiat does to us um, civilizationally. So that's really what part two of the book Fiat Life is all about, Safe. So I, I want to ask you, what prompted you to write this section I mean it's it's uh it's stuff that's likely to get you in trouble
1: yeah um, well I mean fortunately um, I don't have uh, I, I don't work in academia anymore and so um, trouble for me consists of just uh, people shouting on Twitter and then I just block them and I move on with my life and I don't care <laughs> okay so I, I don't have to worry about getting canceled from anything I, I cancel anybody who suggests canceling me preemptively <laughs> so uh, well, maybe not to tempt fate too much, who knows. But I think, um, uh, you know, this was a part of uh, the Bitcoin standard, which uh, was extremely popular. And when I was writing the Bitcoin standard, these were not very popular ideas or very commonly heard ideas. But uh, uh, in uh, for me, the most fascinating thing about uh, Bitcoin perhaps is how it changes people's time preference. And this is something that I think explains why my book became so popular among Bitcoiners because they've all, maybe not all, but a very large number of them have experienced this um, shift to a lower time preference once Bitcoin got into their life. And I think uh, it's something that I will discuss in in more detail in principles of economics, but I also talk about in the fiat standard, which is ultimately time preference is the degree to which we discount the future. And when our money is hard and when our money has good saleability across time as with gold or with bitcoin we have a relatively reliable way of providing for our future and so therefore the future becomes less uncertain and so we're less likely to discount the future we discount the future less and less and that's why i think when people have hard money you see civilization prosper because you see people uh, you know, thinking of the long term, they have a future they can plan for. A child can save, and when they're an adult, they their savings are good enough for them to start a business or build a house. Um, you know, they'll work their way up and watch the value of their money appreciate over time. And that kind of thing will make you invested in the future, will make you care about the future, and will tend to orient all of your behavior toward prospering in the long term. On the other hand. Uh, when And, and when, when you see the value of the money declining, your ability to provide for your future self is compromised. And so you're less likely to, uh, you're more likely to discount the future. And so you're more likely to behave with a high time preference. Um, and I think that reflects on all aspects of life, not just uh, the economic in terms of saving and spending and debt and borrowing, but I think on all uh, aspects of individual life. and. You know, the, the the extreme case, of course, is hyperinflation. And if you've seen what happens in a hyperinflationary society, or if you read uh, Adam Ferguson's When uh, Money Dies, you see that uh, uh, people just discount the future very heavily. They get their paycheck, they run to spend it as fast as they can, and um, everybody um, is willing to do things that are very counterproductive for their long run in favor of the short run so people start lying more cheating fighting um all all kinds of uh social problems are magnified with inflation and something you can see happening in lebanon uh, right now and in venezuela and in zimbabwe and um i think not enough is um mentioned about this obviously fiat economists uh, have a very strong vested interests in uh, in not discussing the impact of fiat money on time preference. But I think that's really the, the the motivating idea. And it is something that I discussed in the Bitcoin Standard in Chapter 5 of the Bitcoin Standard, which was extremely popular. So here I thought, you know, I'm going to expand on it. And um, um, after several years of just uh, thinking more about it, reading more about it, and being exposed to more Bitcoiners and hearing all the stories about how on their time preference drops as they start figuring out, you know, maybe I should quit my drug habit and start uh, buying more Bitcoin. And then uh, maybe I should cut down on drinking and buy more Bitcoin. Um, I think it's, uh, it's um, we, we can really think of it as money is like the operating system of society. And it pervades every transaction that we all do with one another and it pervades every transaction that we do with our future selves. And it's, uh, it's impossible to argue in my mind the contrary, which is that the, um, the, the quality of money and your ability to send mon- value to yourself in the future is not going to affect the way that you decide um, that you make decisions. You know, when you have a harder money, you're just going to naturally think more and more about the future. So uh, I think the 20th century um, by moving towards fiat money uh, was just an, a global um, uh, up, uh, a global raising of time preference. Everybody's time preference just went up all over the world because everybody's money was being compromised. All throughout human history, you know, our time preference was dropping as we were moving toward harder and harder monies as we were developing more advanced technologies for saving and better ways for providing for our future and by the end of the 19th century anybody in the world could save in a gold coin which you know you could get paid in a gold coin and you could save it and hold on to it for 30 years and 30 years later you would expect it to have an even higher market value than when you uh, held on to it that was what the world was like pretty much everywhere by the end of the 19th century and then by the end of the 20th century, that becomes almost unheard of. Nobody can save. And uh, saving is just uh, something that uh, people do if they like to donate money to their government. It's just another way of taxing yourself. Uh, so you, you think about the consequences of that, and I think they're enormous. That They reflect on family. You know, people have now less of an incentive to invest in a family because a family is a long-term project. You see it in architecture, I think, buildings are probably the uh, longest serving uh, consumer goods that we have the most durable consumer goods that we have and so uh, the longer the good is expected to serve the more that uh, discounting your future will uh, affect the the uh, decision you will do you will take about the quality of investment that you will put into it and so we see in the 20th century architecture um, becomes much less durable and it becomes uh, uh you know buildings become far more um, disposable almost and it's because it's it, with uh, fiat money you are discounting the future heavily and so you don't put a lot of value on the building being there in a hundred years from now you care about the building right now and so you will compromise for the long-term quality in order to enhance the short-term quality of the building and we see the effect you know if you walk into any city um, everybody likes to spend time in the um, old quarter of the city that was built in the 19th century which is more friendly for pedestrians and the buildings are um, you know uh, built to last whereas the modern architecture is um, just uh, a, a very high time preference, and I, I mentioned the example of the Boston Library. Uh, the Boston Library, there was one that was built in the McKim Building that was built in eighteen um, nineties. It cost, in today's money, it cost seventy million dollars to build it, and it's still around. And then in the nineteen seventies, they built a, uh, they built another one. And uh, that one cost um, something like, I forget how much it cost exactly at that time, but in uh, recent decades, a decade or two or ago, they had to renovate the new building and that renovation alone cost $70 million. So you could have built a new McKim building that one of the most beautiful buildings in Boston, one of the most important landmarks in Boston, you could have built it for the, price of renovating the new modernist uh, building. So it's not that it is cheaper. It's just that it is, it's not that modern architecture is cheaper. It's not economical. It is actually quite expensive, but it's optimized for the present and it highly discounts the future. That's the difference between it and uh, the uh, old architecture. And then, you know, there's a couple of chapters on uh, two uh, issues which I find very important and uh, quite uh, Uh, underrated in their importance the impact on food which i spoke about earlier and the dietary guidelines and all that and then the impact on energy markets which similar to food the prices of energy rose in the 1970s and then they took them out of cpi and um there was an enormous government push to fix the problem of rising energy costs by blaming it obviously on everything else and by trying to replace the expensive energy, which is the energy that works, the energy that people want, which is you know hydrocarbons and fossil fuels, things that burn and provide a lot of power on demand when you want them. And the, the, the fuels that are really the key to our modern civilization and to our modern life, um, as these became expensive, we started promoting all of these, what I could like to call fiat fuels, all of these pre-industrial technologies that cannot support an industrial civilization, but are being promoted and being shoved down people's throats with fiat regulations and rules and subsidies because of, you know, um, ultimately it's, you know, a a, a confluence of uh, interest groups. There's the initial hysteria was provided from, you know, the inflation, and then that's something that a lot of the environmentalists latched onto with the doomsday message of, we're going to uh, destroy the planet if we keep consuming so much fuels for various reasons. You know, either we're going to run out of it or there's too much of it that we're going to boil the oceans or whatever. But in any case, you know, we th- there's this, uh, you know, the environmental idea that uh, humans are a burden on Earth and we need to be stopped. And so you get this coalition that has been pushing for all of these uh highly inefficient energy sources solar wind and biofuels in particular and uh, you know this was something that i actually wrote my phd on um, back in uh, the distant past and when i did it i thought you know this is just another boondoggle in uh, fiat politics where a bunch of people like al gore and elon musk are going to be making a lot of money uh, by manipulating people's emotions it's just you know regular american politics but now, um, more recently, I'm beginning to realize this is, um, this is a serious threat to modern industrial civilization. And uh, I, I don't think people quite uh, realize just how devastating this would be, because um, most people think that um, we can just, uh, we can uh, replace hydrocarbons with solar, wind, and energy In the same way, you can take your iPhone to the shop and replace your black cover with a red cover. You know, you just go and uh, pick whatever preference you have. But uh, the reality is, this is uh, more like replacing your iPhone with an iPhone made out of uh, sticks and straws. It doesn't work that way. We need all of these uh, materials for all of these essential industrial processes that. We take for granted over the past couple of hundred years, but they make our lives possible. And what we're doing is we're um, subsidizing all these terrible, uh, uh, unreliable sources of energy that cannot support a modern industrial civilization, and decommissioning and uh, fighting the reliable energy sources that have built modern civilization. And you know the the, the result is w- w- what, in my mind, is just absolutely astonishing. You know, you California, Texas, and New York, places that have had a reliable 24-hour electricity for decades are now normalizing the idea that, you know, when it gets too hot or when it gets too cold, your grid might not function.
0: Well, the, the whole part two of this book is remarkable. I, I recommend folks subscribe just to read this because it's going to change your worldview. It's going to change the way you think about all kinds of cultural elements and they're in a relationship with money and time and inflation. It's, I think it's a really important section, although I'm sure you, the, you know, the left will hate this safe. They'll say this is all sort of white supremacy or something talking about time preference. But nonetheless, here we are. Uh, part three is called the fiat liquidator. So just give us sort of a quick and dirty rundown. What is part three about in this and how does it differ from your Bitcoin standard book?
1: Um, so the key operational feature of the fiat standard, which I discussed in part one, is that the process of fiat mining, you know, in Bitcoin, we mine Bitcoin using uh, computers that run complicated mathematical uh, problems. And with gold, they dig um, underground and process it and refine it. And then you get gold. Well, with fiat, uh, the way that fiat is mined is that debt is created. So any financial institution that is backed by the central bank is able to issue fiat liabilities and therefore is able to actually issue fiat. So they're actually creating new fiat tokens every time they're um, uh, making more uh, debt. So when you think about it this way, a lot of the fiat world begins to make sense why everybody is in debt, you know, individuals, companies, governments, everybody is in debt and the more successful you are you don't pay off your debt you take on larger debts that's how everybody uh more or less functions under fiat standard and if you don't function like that you're effectively subsidizing everybody else taking on debt and so uh, with that in mind the interesting thing about bitcoin the uh, really powerful idea about it which Uh, I hadn't really um, thought about uh, thoroughly or discussed in the Bitcoin standard is that Bitcoin is the monetization of a hard asset, similar to gold. And so with gold, you know, if you get paid with gold, gold is a final extinguisher of debt. You no longer, if I pay you with a gold coin, that gold coin has its value in it and it no longer needs me to do anything. You don't have to rely on me to do anything in order for that gold coin to keep working. Whereas on the other hand, with fiat and with debt, uh, with uh, if you're getting paid with debt instruments, there's always a counterparty liability. And so your money is, uh, and the value that you have is dependent on other people fulfilling their obligations. Well, the reason that we got into the process of monetizing uh, fiat and monetizing debt is because of the limitations of gold and the inability of gold to cross space very quickly. And so that gave central banks and banks and governments, the people who can make debt, it made their credit effectively as good as gold. Because if they said, you know, they they they, were, they ran the only uh, bank in uh, town, and if that bank said, we have this much money for you, then that was as good as uh, as good as it's going to get whether the money's actually there or not is immaterial it was their credit that was money so bitcoin is now allowing us to monetize something that is different from debt and i think that's uh, th- that's really the um the-, the powerful aspect of it because it as it grows you know we're witnessing an a, a parallel monetary system built on a hard asset growing next to the fiat monetary system which is built on a highly inflationary Uh, credit uh, base and that credit is just constantly expanding and the supply of the money is constantly expanding and the value stored in it is constantly dissipating whereas a value stored in bitcoin is constantly getting amplified because um, of what i like to call bitcoin's number go up technology and the supply is limited and so more demand just continues to raise the price upwards so um, fiat Bitcoin basically allows us to liquidate liquidate the fiat system um, in a in a, in, a, in a neat and orderly manner. I hope potentially you know it could get ugly, but I think um, w- w- there is there is a peaceful coexistence scenario where you know fiat continues to operate as it is, and Bitcoin is just the lifeboat that continues to grow and people jump from the titanic onto the lifeboat but the lifeboat eventually becomes much bigger than the titanic and um you know basically anybody can jump off the titanic onto the lifeboat at any point in time so i'm sure a lot of people are going to um, suffer from the titanic but at this point, you know, 10 years into Bitcoin's operation, you're basically choosing to stay on the Titanic uh, at this point. And uh, you're, the alternative is there. The, the, the lifeboat is uh, is better and bigger than the Titanic, and it's ready and it's waiting for you. So um, it could be not so terrible because as the value stored in Fiat declines in real terms because of inflation, Uh, people can uh, compensate for it by upgrading and moving to Bitcoin.
0: You know, Safe, I thought there was a little bit of a parallel. You talk about the money supply uh, in some of your earlier chapters, especially chapter six, where I might add you do a nice takedown of fractional reserve. But this idea that we have to worry about the money supply, and I think there's a little bit of a parallel here where you say, you know, it's not really about scaling Bitcoin. We always hear this all the time. Somehow it needs to scale uh, so that it can become some worldwide uh, day-to-day transactional currency. And you say, no, no, no. What What's required of Bitcoin is that it simply survives long enough. Uh, so talk a little bit about that. What were you intending to, to tell us there?
1: I think ultimately Bitcoin's uh, success is um, – I think a lot of people, particularly fiat people – they uh, think of money purely as the token that you use in order to exchange value amongst people. And I think that's almost a uh, trivial uh, function uh, for money, because we already have all kinds of payment systems that can work with whatever um, asset you have behind them. So, you know, uh, PayPal now has Bitcoin. And this is something that I, you know, when I said it in the Bitcoin standard that was kind of heretic at that point, and many people thought that was crazy. but here we are, you know there's there isn't a single fiat payment rail that cannot be run on top of Bitcoin. We can have visa run Bitcoin and, you know they already run what is it uh, hundred currencies or something like that. They already provide payments in a hundred different currencies. Bitcoin would just be one extra currency that they add, and they just need to have. Uh, a market maker buying and selling Bitcoin from Bitcoin exchanges, and that's it. You know, they'll be able to provide it. So the the payment aspect of it is almost not interesting because if there is demand for transactions in Bitcoin, there will be millions of ways found in order for people to uh, transact with Bitcoin. Um, And and that won't be on the base layer. There is a strict limit to how much uh, transactions we can fit on chain. And that's already probably something like 10% of all Bitcoin transactions. When you think about how many transactions take place on exchanges and Bitcoin- based websites, a lot more transactions take place on secondary layers uh, than on uh, than on chain. So for me the, the the growth of Bitcoin, the scaling of Bitcoin is primarily about, Uh, cash balances, it's how much of the world's cash balances Bitcoin uh, are in Bitcoin. And currently, this is somewhere in the range of depending on how you calculate cash balances, and if you count bonds or not, but it's somewhere between 0.1 and 0.5% or something like that. So it's still very early days in that regard. But um, and, and that's why, you know, most people don't get paid in Bitcoin, and they don't make payments in Bitcoin, because for the vast majority of people, Bitcoin is a small percent of their cash balances. And the likelihood of coming across somebody, or if even if it is a large percent, the likelihood of coming across somebody who wants to buy or sell the same thing that you want to buy and sell and also wants to buy and sell Bitcoin at this point is not very high because um, there's just not that many people with a lot of Bitcoin balances that they can uh, trade with at the margin. Most people have zero Bitcoin. Now, as cash balances in Bitcoin increase, that's going to lead to more and more um, trade opportunities between people with Bitcoin, and we're going to see Bitcoin transactions increase more and more. But ultimately, I think it's it's really about just uh, growth in the cash balances and the value of cash balances. And of course, Bitcoin's superpower here is that it uh, goes against the Keynesian uh, dogma, which is the way to grow is to make more money, to print more money. Bitcoin doesn't print more money, the supply, we're almost at 90% of the supply has already been produced now. And so over the next century, we're only going to make another 10% of all the Bitcoins. You know, 90% were made in the last 12 years, and the last 10% are going to take another century or so. So it's uh, the supply is not increasing but the value of the cash balances is increasing precisely because the supply is not increasing because that guarantees that the value goes up or at least makes the value likely to go up and so people will more and more likely want to move to that and I think that's really the the the, the secret weapon that bitcoin has well it's not very secret but that's the weapon that it has
0: Well before I let you go I just wanted to touch on something uh, biographical and, you know, you have a degree from London School of Economics, you have a PhD from Columbia, you taught at Lebanese American University. So you've seen things from the inside. What, what is fiat academia and how did you end up escaping it? How come you didn't stay?
1: Uh, fiat academia, and I'd have a whole chapter on fiat science in the book. It's, um, I think the way that I explain it functionally, if you wanted to really apply um, economic analysis to how and to understand the incentives, is that uh, funding comes from government and it comes from government committees that assign funding to universities and uh, provide loans to students. And so success is not measured on the market. You don't have to provide people with something valuable, whether it is uh, you know knowledge that they benefit from individually or for businesses, you're not being judged on by how much you contribute to society um, on, on the market. You're being judged by a bunch of bureaucrats with boxes to tick. And so what that has led to is that universities and those uh, funding bodies have to agree on kind of objective criteria, you know, because there's no market, you're trying to centrally plan and so, We're back at the calculation problem. You know, the the calculation problem applied to academia is essentially the fiat science chapter. You have that calculation problem, so how do they solve it? How do those academics and those funding bodies uh, get around it? The answer was publications in academic journals. And so they start putting uh, scores and points on the journal quality and then the kind of paper that you publish and that gives you a certain number of points. And then the more points you get, the more you can advance and the better the university you can go to. And then the university that has people getting more points on in, in publishing in all of these uh, journals, these universities end up getting more and more funding. And so the result is we've, it's, it's very similar to what Mises describes in um, the collapse of Soviet uh, production, the collapse of socialism, which, you know, he described decades before it happened, um, which is, you know, the factories that are operating and the people who show up to work and who go to the factories but and um, they, get, they, they go to the job, but the factories produce nothing and all economic production is stalling because there are no price signals and there's no economic calculation possible. And that's kind of where academia is right now. We have massive overproduction of research papers. We have an infinite number of journals that are producing an infinite number of um, articles that nobody reads. So the metric by which the... Um, uh, bureaucracy judges is obviously uh, shooting through the roof you know the, 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 they there is there isn't any single person who can keep up with all of the journals in their field you couldn't you know, if, if you were an economist you would, would not have enough hours of the day to read all the papers that are published in uh, economic journals throughout the year that's it's just impossible there's so many of them but it doesn't matter nobody reads them and the point is to just tick the methodological boxes and tick the politically correct boxes and, you know, write grammatically correct sentences. And then you get the points and then you advance. And so we have this entire paper mill that's producing papers that um, don't need to offer any relation to reality. And that's why uh, academia is so unhinged from reality, really, because there's no market test. And instead, people are just uh, writing things that satisfy the bureaucracy. And so, uh, I mean, the, this is something that I'd uh, noticed when I was in academia. You know, you, you you keep expecting that the more you read, the more you're going to understand. But the more you read, the more inexplicably long and complicated papers you're coming across and not arriving at any uh, profound conclusion out of it and uh, later on you realize, yeah, these people, the, the point of these papers is not to communicate anything useful to the reader, the point of these papers is to uh, give the person who wrote it a promotion, that's what it is about. And so um, this is why in my mind, you know, you look at what academia has degenerated into, whether it's the science of nutrition, or the science of climate, uh, or the science of, um, you know, medical hysteria, as we saw last year, It's just uh, – it's a very far cry from what people think universities are and from what universities were in the 19th century. It's – the the modern scholar is completely different from what people think a scholar should uh, actually be.
0: Well, a lot of that goes to the heart, I think, of this very book. It is called The Fiat Standard, The Debt Slavery Alternative to Human Civilization. You can actually read along – and get your own copy at safedin.com. I encourage you to, to do so and to join his insider group. I also encourage you to follow him on Twitter, Dr. Safedin Amos. So, safe, it's great to talk to you. I want to thank you so much for your time, and I really hope to see you uh, somewhere soon after all this COVID stuff has calmed down.
1: Thank you so much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be on the show again and to talk to you.
0: The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.